talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Happy anniversary! It was two years ago today the first case of COVID-19 was detected in Canada. Celebrate with a new mask. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! Haven't we been celebrating everything with a new mask for two years? That's what we do now. Go out to dinner? No. Go to the uh, movie? No. Uh, buy someone flowers? No. Get them a nice uh, mask arrangement. That's what we do. Uh, mask kits, different colored masks. People were giving them out. Remember that? Christmas presents, that sort of thing. All right. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board and in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. They'll be joining us around the big round table. Coming up after the 4.30 news, we would love for you to uh, join us for that. And if you want us to throw something on the table, feel free. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221-STAR. 9900 on your cell. All right. You know, I, I kind of uh, stumbled on this yesterday. I, I, I didn't really even realize it. Uh, uh, Will uh, Erskine, uh, content producer, was, uh, we were going back and forth and talking about, um, you know, how the anniversary of the discovery of COVID-19 kind of uh, came and went in and around where it originated, and that was Wuhan, China. And so uh, just researching that and going backwards and, you know, it's yesterday I thought, well, oh, wow, here it is, January 25th. And this was from an article that was a year ago celebrating the anniversary of it. Uh, that today, January 21st, uh, 25th, uh, was the first time a, uh, a case of COVID-19 was reported uh, in Canada and uh, at Sunnybrook Medical Center. And that was from a both of and the second one was uh, the person's wife, a man and woman who had traveled from Wuhan and uh, brought the disease, con- uh, came in contact with the disease there. So uh, and then shortly after that, you know what happens. But it was January 25th, the very first case in uh, Canada. Here we are two years later, uh, heading into year three. And, um, you know, I'm not sure it's the kind of anniversary people even want to talk about or celebrate, you know, certainly not. Um, But it does show you how far we have come. It also shows you uh, the toll that this has taken as you look back and you go, oh, my God, look at how this is ravaged life and, and made life so difficult for so many uh, in literally uh, every corner of the planet, literally, literally every walk of life. Uh, but it's also a time to reflect and, and, and think about how far we have come and what has come out of this. What are the positives? Uh, it, it's easy to talk about the, uh, the negatives, um, but, you know, but what are the positives? And I remember earlier on, in this pandemic and you know we were talking about this yesterday uh that when this all started two years ago many said these pandemics two years takes two years two years to run the course to become till it becomes an endemic 
which basically means it's prevalent in, in certain areas, certain parts of the world, but is managed in all of the rest. And I remember those discussions. We'll have this discussion with Dr. Ahmad Khalid uh, coming up a little later on. Um, but, you know, then talked about two years, and here it is. We are at that two-year mark. Uh, you know, knock on wood, as I bang in my forehead, you hope that uh, the Omicron variant is the last one that uh, th- that is going to take over the world the way that it has and uh, spreading the way that it has, but thankfully not as dangerous and pretty much pushing uh, the Delta right out. So uh, that's how an endemic uh, happens. And that's look, it looks like that's what's happened here. And as long as you're fully vaccinated uh, and, you know, if you come in contact, you should be okay. So, you know, those are some of the good things. Um, uh, again, this was predicted uh, a two-year stint. Also, something to be very very happy about is that we've had vaccines that have been produced in a record period of time. And that's not because research has been shortchanged in any way. It's because silos have been torn down and people have worked together all over the world to come up with a solution. And they did this in stages, sharing information every step of the way and getting approval from their various agencies, like whether it's the FDA in the States or whether it's Health Canada here, as the process is unfolding. Uh, Unfortunately, testing, that takes time, and a lot of that we're learning on the fly. But to get everybody to come together and 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 work together and come up with a, va- a vaccination literally in less than a year. Uh, and then, of course, there was research after that testing, but uh, trials and such. But, you know, it's it's nothing short of remarkable. And many health experts have said as a result of this, uh, this will change the way we look at cancers and other debilitating diseases. Uh, around the world because if we can use that same sort of theory instead of you know competing with each other uh, mankind uh, humankind will, will certainly be farther along so i mean right there alone that's one thing that that has you know the advances that have been made uh in medicine are are, are just huge now it's also pointed out for canada the weaknesses in our uh, healthcare system which hopefully will be rectified uh or we'll pay more attention to it anyway as we move forward and rectify these issues and help our struggling uh healthcare staff uh, and, and another thing to be proud of is uh, there's like uh, well over 80% of us in Canada, five plus, who've been fully vaccinated. Those are astronomical numbers. And again, I remember two years ago when we were talking about this, people were saying, you know, because they were comparing it to the flu shot, which I think is what, a 40% uptake, something like that on a good year. And, and you know, they're saying if we can get 50, 60% of people taking this, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully be in a good spot. And here we are with, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of Canadians are vaccinated. And, and you know, the ones that aren't are, uh, you know, either steer, still fearful or, you know, have some sort of medical reason or are just the sort of person you're not going to convince to take it anyway. So uh, to think how far we have come in two years. And again, it's been hell. I mean, you know, I don't need to tell you that. You know, uh, you all know that. But, you know, to think that how far we've come, how this really changes the way we view things, we set our priorities. And again, just in medicine alone, uh, you know, uh, too bad we had to go through this to figure it all out. Um, But there is pause. There is reason uh, to pat ourselves on the back for how far we have come uh, in this mess over the course of two years. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Certainly over the years, we've all uh, come to know and love Little Ray. Uh, Little Ray's reptiles uh, over the years and, uh, and and a part of the community and in the news for various reasons, whether it's helping lost critters or losing lost or losing found critters. <laughs> it, it's it's always uh, uh, great to see Little Ray out in the community and doing his thing to educate about uh, these little critters. And Paul Little Ray Goulet, founder and owner of Little Ray's, is with us now. Uh, by the way, located at 869 Barton Street East in the Hammer. Little Ray Great to hear from you. I hope things are going well. Scott, we're hanging in there, buddy. We're uh, we're uh, still navigating, you know, um, this uh, you know the public health crisis we're in with COVID nineteen and, and shutdowns and uh, the seasonality of the shutdowns, which is is really hard on us as an organization because January, February, March is when we do make about sixty percent of our gross revenue in Canada. So. Um, it's been, uh, it's, it's been challenging at best. And if two years ago, uh, you told me we'd still be here, I'd be like, there's no way we could survive. So the good news is we're still here. Yeah. It might be by the skin of our teeth, but we're still here. So give, uh, those that may not know about the, the little Ray, uh, experience, give a bit of back history here. Tell us about this, uh, uh, your business. Yeah, so we, we, my wife and I founded it really as a, a small education company back in 1995, uh, really no intentions of doing or becoming what it did. Um, and uh, very quickly, we were doing educational programs for, for exclusively for classrooms. We started doing more uh, things in like home birthday parties, daycares, retirement homes. Uh, and all of a sudden, we were helping the SPCA, the Humane Society, uh, municipal, provincial, federal governments right across Canada with the placement of seized and unwanted animals. And, and 26 late, years later, we are the largest exotic animal rescue organization in, in Canada. Uh, we have two locations in Canada. We have one in the U.S. that we're very thankful for um, because the U.S. has remained more open for us as a, as a business. We've been able to generate positive net revenue in the U.S. Uh, um, and uh, we do now museum exhibits across Canada and, and the United States, as well as, as festivals. Some people have seen we've done festivals, uh, wildlife festival at the Ancaster Fairgrounds in, in the past. So yeah. uh, that's really us in a nutshell and where we came from and where we're at today. The greatest thing about watching you guys in action is like when there's a whole pile of kids crowded around and you're standing there with some sort of critter they've probably only seen 50 times bigger in the movies and and they're just so fascinated by by the experience of it all. So w- what happens to all of this during a global pandemic? Like well obviously because of contact you can't you, you can't bring uh, uh the critters to uh, the yeah. schools and, and wherever it is you're going. So how have you made it through the last couple of years? You know, we, we've had to borrow money. You know, that's really what it comes down to. We've had about $450,000 in public donations come in uh, for our entire Canadian operation, and that includes, you know, Ottawa and Hamilton. Um, we've borrowed $1,590,000. We have about 90 animals, to, excuse me, 900 animals to care for. You know, the pandemic has been really challenging on copious businesses, not just ours, but our industry with live animals is extremely unique. You know, we've been we've been shut down for I should say we've been closed down, not shut down. We've been closed down for 10 of 22 months during the pandemic. But in, in restaurants have been decimated and hit so hard during this as well. So. 
you know, I'll use them as an example, but it's not lost on me the impact that restaurants and those those owners and entrepreneurs have faced. But for us, you know, when we're shut down or closed, you know, we're not we're not shut down. Like all our staff still have to go to the building. We have to care for the animals. We can't. that was my point. It's like that was yeah. I was just gonna. My next question was what what happens because obviously you can't open your doors, but yeah. there's obviously yeah. animals in there that still need to be cared for and have uh, daily needs. Yeah, our our in the first five months of the pandemic, you know, our revenue was down ninety six percent. In the first year, we were down 76%. Actually, that's where we're down over overall. We're down 76%. Our operational cost for running the facilities was down 7%. So where we are being catastrophically affected from a revenue-generating standpoint, our ability to turn off our expenses is, is yeah. non-existent compared to a traditional business model. And, you know, we've been able to borrow money and we've been able to borrow money through government programs, um, like I said, to the tune of $1.6 million in order to keep the lights on and keep the animals fed. But, you know, we're walking into now losing our busy season in January, February, March. This is when we generate our profit. This is what funds the centers throughout the year. Uh, we're now losing this for, you know, we lost March 2020. We lost all of January, February, March last year. And when I say we're losing it, look, it's great if we get open back up to the public, but public paying admission to come to see our facilities is less than 4% of our gross revenue. So it's mm. the classroom programs, it's the festivals, it's the museum exhibits. And yes, it looks like we're opening up again, and we're going to be able to run festivals again after February. Uh, February 21st, I believe, is the date the premier has set. Um, you know, we have to also wait and make sure that these dates happen. We can't just start planning a, a wildlife festival and spending tens of thousands of dollars on rent and advertising and other logistics stuff we have to do and then have them get shut down. We will not get the money back, right? We can't we can't go to CMHL, which I understand, and say, look, we want to spend X amount of dollars on advertising. But if our event shuts down, we want our money back. Like that's not yeah. the way it hmm. works. And we don't expect it to so tell we're in a precarious how, how can people how can people help out here, Ray? What talk about the GoFundMe page. Yeah, so we have a GoFundMe campaign. It says, you know, we're trying we have a GoFundMe. We have something if you go through our website, which is uh, lrnc.ca is our website, as in Little Ray's Nature Centers ca lrnc.ca is our is our website we have an in-house kind of donation system uh, through a, uh, it's called a neon crm is what it is and we also have a gofundme campaign we're trying to raise two hundred and fifty thousand dollars just to help with our shortfalls that we're projecting uh, for the next year and you know our reserves are gone so we're trying to get to a point where we have some buffer that we can actually breathe if there's any other emergencies that pop up we think that the province is going to come through uh, with some money through the Minister of uh, Tourism, hmm. Heritage, Tourism, Sports and Culture. So we, we've got some pretty optimistic phone calls from them, but the maximum that might be is 250000 So I guess ultimately we're trying to raise another $250,000. Little Ray Goulet with us, founder and owner of Little Ray's, located uh, in the Hammer at 869 Barton Street East and also in Ottawa. LittleRays.org if you can help out. Ray, good luck with all of this moving forward. I'm sure uh, better times are ahead. Good luck.
Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great day. Where are we now on the second anniversary of the first reported case of COVID-19? Somebody said, I've been traveling all over the world. Said uh, before that, you think this is actually the real first time? You know, people are just so angry about this stuff. And it's like, well, no, sir. This is the first reported case in Canada. Uh, January 25th in Toronto, uh, and then a day later, the second case uh, reported in the day after, and that was uh, the person's wife, both that traveled from Wuhan, China, and the rest is history, as they say. So where is our head? And I've enjoyed having the various uh, uh, pollsters and surveyors and researchers on talking about uh, measuring where we are as we go through this societal experiment. Uh, and let's bring in Daryl Bricker, president of Ipsos Public Affairs and with us now daryl thank you for the time i hope you're well i'm doing well i'm also quite bored with all of this i'd rather talk about meatloaf <laughs> <laughs> there you go i'm surprised re- you mentioned yeah, I, every time i hear meatloaf I, the first place i go is the rocky horror picture show yeah that's very cool yep absolutely thinking, you know one from the vaults there we go and it'll be interesting to see after the next month how many, how much uh, attention that has drawn, how many more streams there have been, how many more albums have been sold, uh, and perhaps even more recipes for meatloaf looked up. Who knows? Oh, you brought up an interesting point, Daryl, and I think everybody is at the end of the rope. Uh, we're trying not to talk about this as much as we once did or we once had to. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, I really noticed the, the, the tide changing post holiday, uh, that this became one of a, a, a cause of uh, not so much the dangers of COVID, but the dangers of keeping a underfunded healthcare system um, viable and working and, and propped up and uh, and vaccinations we have such a high rate of people who are vaccinated um, your thoughts on what we're thinking right now where are our heads as we come to this anniversary or I guess mark this whatever you want to call it date well what's interesting is that we've now had two years of being able to measure how people think about this particular topic. And we've gone through a fairly dramatic transition where, uh, you know, a year and a half ago when we were first locking down and taking on this challenge, people were, um, you know, all in. Um, There was a a really strong public consensus about how to deal with this. And there wasn't a lot of tolerance for people who weren't prepared to comply with the consensus. And what's happened is over particularly, I would say, the last month, that's really started to fray. Hmm. So what we're seeing now is, you know, people continue to believe like 67% believe that we should have, you know, further restrictions on people who are unvaccinated. But if you go back to when we first started being vaccinated, or particularly when vaccines really started to take off, those numbers were much higher. Uh, you know, for example, uh, now we're finding in surveys 51% agreeing that we should find ways to accommodate uh, people who are unvaccinated, which we never saw before. Um, And I think part of this is just this sense that we're now, and when we ask people on the survey, uh, surveys, do you think that, you know, being vaccinated is going to get us out of this? And the answer is no, (laughs) it's actually not. And it's not that people are cynical or negative or anything like that. It's, it's, it's when you're still locked up and you, and I think you said quite correctly, you know, you get into vaccine rates are in the high eighties and in low nineties that, that, you know, that what the promise was that we was we were going to be able to get back to our normal lives and we haven't been able to do that. So what's happened is this gap between what people were told and their high, high level of compliance 
And then what the payoff has been is starting to cause problems. And uh, it's 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 been interesting to watch as uh, the Omicron variant came through and many of us got it or knew somebody that had had it. And if fully vaccinated, come out the other side relatively unscathed. And I certainly don't mean to diminish those that have gotten seriously ill for it or those that are hospitalized or in ICU now. But I think we're also realizing that we have to live with this as opposed to run from it. Yeah, but by the same token, we're desperately don't want to get it. We think it's going to yeah. be, you know, incredibly inconvenient. And we also think that, you know, you could get really, really sick from this. So people are fearful of it, but it's now getting into a position where they're at least uh, willing to talk about trade-offs and differences and different ways of dealing with things. Because as I said before, they do not, if they're living in Ontario today, they do not feel that they've made any progress over the space of the last uh, the last year, and in fact, that we probably have slipped back. So as, as a result of that, um, the, the level of, as I said before, consensus is becoming frayed. And the word that I keep hearing people toss around is that people are fatigued. No, it's yeah. not that they're fatigued, they're frustrated. And frustrated mm-hmm. has a, diff- has a dis- different emotional content in which there's a, kind of a sublimated anger there. There's an anger element to being frustrated. And, and that's kind of where we're going right now in terms of public opinion. Uh, we talked about, and you mentioned it as well, the, the very high, extremely high, some of the highest in the world vaccination rates. Are we, uh, are, is our anger fueled that that's not solving our issues or does that translate the, the anger over to those, the small minority that are not vaccinated? How many more can we get vaccinated at this point? Yeah, and, and this is, again, 49% in the surveys that we released last week, um, or actually on the weekend about this, say that the, the people who are to blame for this are the unvaccinated. So that means half the population don't think that. And that's where we are in many of these questions. When we would ask this a year ago, uh, people would say, yeah, it's the unvaccinated that are causing this. You know, it was all about people who are being unreasonable and you know, not complying. And now, you know, half the public's prepared to say, well, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that that's what it is because they're watching this issue like a hawk. They're paying very, very, or a falcon, paying very <laughs> close attention to what's going on in the numbers. And they can sit back and say, hold on, 90% and we're not out? Maybe it's not working as great as we thought it was going to work. And by the way, now I know people who are vaccinated who have gotten sick. Yeah. Now I don't feel safe necessarily because of the vaccines that I have in terms of uh, my ability to go out. Uh, all of this stuff is adding up to uh, to uh, a different public environment around this. And where it's going to go, difficult to say. Daryl Brecker with us, president of Ipsos Public Affairs, measuring the temperature of Canadians and where we are as we mark the second anniversary of the first case being detected of COVID-19 in Canada. Daryl, uh, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Remember, uh, it was years ago, that it was first reported that there were uh, falcons that were nesting on uh, or at uh, Hamilton Sheridan Hotel, and uh, it was it was pretty cool because uh, eventually a camera was mounted, and over the years uh, we got to watch uh, these families come and go and it, you know at first it was it was quite amazing and everybody was quite astonished, but then it just came and it became an annual event. 
Uh, but now, unfortunately, one of the noted female peregrine falcons uh, has died. To talk more about all of this, Jackson Hudecki is with us uh, to talk more. And Hugh Decky, Jackson Hugh Decky is with us and Bird Study Group uh, at HamiltonNature.org to find out more. Jackson, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show to talk about my favorite subject, birds. So how long have we been watching this perch? How long have we been watching this area? When did it all start? It started in the 90s, to be honest, um, but it's, it's um, with the advancement in technology, we've been able to get uh, up close and personal with the, the multiple couples that have been breeding on the uh, Sheridan Hotel right here in downtown Hamilton. So it's been going on for quite a while, which is pretty impressive. So multiple couples. So over the time that you've been watching, how many couples have there been? And then we'll get to how many babies produced. Well, that's I I don't have uh, the exact numbers, to be honest. Um, I I know that there was uh, the original couple. They were calling it calling them mom and dad. And then there was Madam X and Serge yes, and I then Lily and Ozzy. Yeah, what's that? I do remember Madam X, yes. Yeah, Madam X and Serge and then Lily and Ozzy. Um, and just in the spring of 2021, the male Ozzy was unseated from the territory from a new male um and that male we know is named uh hudson or judson sorry judson and the lily has been around since uh 2015 in hamilton uh and she and ozzy together produced eight fledglings in that time from 2015 until 2021 um and then and then uh, just over the weekend, and, and folks have been hearing of the, the, the death of Lily, the, 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 the female breeding peregrine falcon. So um, uh, Lily spent a year or so with a new mate? Well, it's funny because um, the new male showed up during um, what would have been the, the incubation period of of the clutch from 2021 and when when the new male showed up um neither he or lily sat on the sat on any eggs that were at the hotel and there were no young produced in 2021 Mm. um, as a result of the of the arrival of the new male so is this Jackson about looking for, you know, two, two birds looking or a bird looking for a mate or more so looking for a safe place to, to produce, to construct a nest? You know, it's, it's both when you, when it comes to the natural world, they're yeah. looking for a suitable mate and suitable habitat. So like, uh, in, you know, prior to human arrival, you know, peregrines nest on the sides of cliffs. Yeah. And as we have been sprawling, uh, peregrines look at, at, at skyscrapers and big, tall apartment buildings. They look a lot alike and, uh, you know, they'll they'll choose the sides of buildings in, in various parts of the world to to establish their nest. And, you know, 
peregrines eat birds, right? That's their main yeah. diet are other yeah. birds. And when you go walk around downtown Hamilton, there's no shortage of, of, of birds, especially pigeons, uh, right yeah. there in the court. So what is the average lifespan of, uh, of a falcon? They, they, uh, they're, they could be around anywhere from, you know, nine to 15 years. Uh, Lily was 11. So, mm-hmm. you know, peregrine falcons, their, their, their populations have been in decline, uh, for, for, you know, uh, several dozen years. And we've been watching numbers, um, get lower and lower to the point where now there, there is special protection for these birds. And, and there are banders who will eat, who will, when, uh, when, when babies hatch out of the eggs, and this happens in Hamilton, um, folks will rappel down the Sheridan building, retrieve the young, um, determine if they're what their sex is, put bands on their on their clasp bands to their to their talons, and then leave them again forever. Now you know that's the that's the least yeah. that's the most human interaction that will occur. But then those bands will help identify these birds down the road. That's how we're able to to know their names. In fact, we can even figure out and trace them back to where they were born, um, and then it'll help us determine. And right now, the the the, the kind of the good news story that's coming out of this, despite the fact that we're seeing Lily now deceased, is that is a new female is hanging out at the Sheridan. So this year we could see a whole new family emerging out of Hamilton uh, through through Peregrine Falcons. Wow, that's amazing. What a great story. Jackson Hudecki with us uh, talking about Lily, one of the noted female Peregrine Falcons uh, that made her home atop of Hamilton's uh, Sheridan Hotel has passed away, but it seems there's lots there to uh, take her place. Jackson, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward with all this. Happy viewing. Yeah, thank you. And if anyone's looking to to join in with the movement, the Hamilton Naturalist Club is always looking for members and volunteers. And we're even looking for people to help out in the spring when this new couple may perhaps produce some young. We need folks out there keeping their eyes up on the Sheridan uh, in case any of the the younglings, as they're they're fledging the nest, in case they get into any, any wind gusts or fly into a building, we can be there to help out. So we're always looking for nature based Hamiltonians to help out. There you go. Jackson, thanks for the time. Good luck. What matters to you, what matters to Hamilton, matters to Scott. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I think a lot of us are surprised at uh, the speed in which uh, things started heating up along the Russia-Ukraine border and certainly allies' reaction to it. Sources tell Global News that the Prime Minister, uh, the Cabinet is weighing whether to ship small weapons and firearms, munitions to Ukraine uh, and 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 that at a virtual three-day retreat that is underway now. Let's bring in Amanda Connolly, senior political reporter with Global News and with us now. Amanda, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. Yes, I hope you're you're well uh, as well. <laughs> this is kind of snuck up on us, Amanda. I, I mean, obviously, those that follow the file know that it, th- there's been some uh, some con- uh, some tension there for a while. But it seems to be making the news, and, and all of a sudden, everybody is jumping on board. Uh, I think many are are surprised at Canada's reaction to this that it's been so strong, considering some of the tepid. You're listening uh, to the uh, Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Ukraine, were we're right in there. Um, what about the speed of which this has escalated? 
Yeah, this has certainly been a really rapidly changing situation. We've really seen things heat up here over the last uh, kind of 72 hours in particular. But uh, I think you're absolutely right in, in noting here that, again, this has flared quickly. Uh, tensions are really, really high right now. Of course, uh, Russia has made some demands among them that Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO. Uh, for a lot of countries, that's going to be a big issue. There is this kind of principle that countries should be able to decide for themselves, what they want their future to be and putting an outright ban on a country that wants to say, you know, we want to join NATO, this very prominent military alliance has been um, a, a, a bit of a, a kind of a, a no-go zone for a lot of countries here. And so, uh, yeah, certainly kind of heating up the tensions again. And it's been really interesting to see where this is going to go next. Is that the main factor here? Because many have said that Putin's been looking for an astra- a distraction back home because things aren't too good there. Uh, but is it because Ukraine wants to be uh, a piece of NATO, a part of NATO, and that's just a no-go zone for Putin? Well, that certainly seems to be one of the main sticking points that we're seeing come up in the negotiations and the conversations around this. Of course, as you mentioned there, Putin is uh, is also under quite a lot of pressure. Uh, the COVID-19 situation in Russia has not been good. Uh, certainly can't weigh out that is factoring factoring in here as well. But uh, really what, what we're looking at here in terms of where discussions are focusing is really sticking on that NATO question and whether Ukraine should be allowed to join. So, of course, as you mentioned there off the top as well, Canada has been having a very clear response to this so far coming out um, being relatively, um, I think you can say comparatively strong in their stance on a response to this. That's a little bit of a different, uh, a little bit of a different flavor for the government here. Again, they have been a little bit more uh, cautious, you could say, in foreign policy over their roughly six years in office here, particularly on the China file. But again, we've certainly been hearing that when the the cabinet is discussing this proposal to potentially send small firearms and ammunition to Ukraine, along with potentially more military capabilities as well, that they're really focusing here on, on the desire to send a strong and clear message to Russia in support of Ukraine. What about allies on this? I understand the U.S. is, you know, uh, obviously fortifying their situation. Yeah, allies have had, uh, you know, the the big push here really has been to try and speak with a unified voice to have all of the NATO allies here really coming together and no one, um, no, no one kind of pulling back or feeling like they're they're off base with the other allies. And so, by and large, that that has been. Um, I think it's firstly the overarching approach here, but there have, of course, been differences among some allies. We saw this kind of early on with the approach to how countries were going to deal with the families of their diplomats stationed in Ukraine, for example. So the U.S. and the U.K. both pulled the families of their diplomats out of Ukraine earlier in the week, setting concerns about a possible Russian invasion there. Canada did not initially do this, but they have now changed the right. position there. And earlier today did say that they want all the families of Canadian diplomats to come back home. Where do you see, or where does anyone see this going? What's a good ending here for Putin? Uh, I mean, obviously, it's peace in the valley for the rest of the allies, but what's what's a win here for him? This really is the big question. I think, of course, when you have these kind of tensions between countries, particularly when you have them between two nuclear-armed countries, as is the case with the U.S. and Russia, of course, uh, the, the, the big kind of focus here is cooling off the really hot and flamed tensions, not, not making things worse, finding ways to get people to come around that table and have a conversation where hopefully, you know, each of them feels like they are able to save face with their domestic population, that, of course, being uh, likely a concern for Putin as well when you take into account the domestic situation there, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and, and really all sides feel like they're able to walk away with something. For Russia, of course, we've heard 
again and again, the, 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 the premise of Ukraine joining NATO, having a NATO ally right on their border there is, is viewed as a threat or felt as a threat by them because, of course, NATO is more than just a military alliance. It really is kind of a political and cultural alliance in a lot of ways as yeah. well. That, of course, being um, a bit of, you, I would imagine you and you hear a lot, a bit of a threat to Putin from his point of view there to have that ally so close joining uh, with more of the West as opposed to the worldview that Putin and Russia are looking at it from. So really, again, a lot of moving parts here. We don't know where this is going to go just yet, but certainly one that we are expecting more information on tomorrow when that cabinet retreat wraps up. You'd think everybody would be too busy just trying to get through a pandemic with, uh, you know, to bother with all of this at this point. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> really? so much going on in the world. It, it has certainly been a, a wild ride here, and this really has been the latest in a lot of different tensions that all these countries are really grappling with with their own populations here from inflation and COVID and just everything going on here. So certainly, you know, the, the diplomats are keeping busy, that's for sure. Amanda Connolly with us, senior political reporter with Global News, talking about what is going on along the Ukraine-Russian border and Canada's involvement in it. Make sure you're watching Amanda tonight for more on all of this on Global News. Amanda, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Will Weber is on the board in the newsroom, making the way around the virtual table. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. You know, I meant to ask you, welcome, table heads. Good to have you here. Sorry, Hello. I'm talking ahead of even introducing you. I meant to ask you, and, and I don't know, I just gapped on this yesterday because we had so much crap on the show to talk about. Uh, and I know uh, you're football fans, but I wanted your take on the football weekend we just went through. Uh, this is a carryover from yesterday and the Bills and what have you. My son and I were glued to the, the TV for most of uh, Sunday afternoon, but I know your fans. What are your thoughts? Uh, Lisa, or sorry, Diana, we'll start with you. Well, you know, I didn't really tune in too much. I will say I was a bad NFL football fan this past weekend, as you all know. Oh, come on. Is this because it's not your team thing? Is that where you're going with this? No, I had a lot of stuff to do around the house, so it was like on in the background, but I didn't quite pay attention as much as I should. However, I do know that it was some fantastic football that was played, and I'm kicking myself, no pun intended, that I didn't pay more attention. Diana, I'm completely surprised at you, considering all the stuff you tell us about your Cleveland Browns and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I know. I don't know if Dave wow. knows that I'm I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. I'm sure he'll feel sorry for me now. <laughs> oh, you both you want... and Ken, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. yeah, you yeah. got it. I can't say I can't say much. I'm a, I'm a New Orleans Saints fan, so well, I really okay. can't right. say a whole oh, lot. Oh man, today you know today's been rough. Sorry, today's been rough. Sean Payton decided that he's not coming back. Uh, of course, the head coach of the Saints. So I'm a little down. But it's okay because we had some great football over the weekend. Uh, like you said, uh, that Bills-Chiefs game probably was one of the best games that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Diana. Yeah. I caught, uh, no, it's okay. I, I, you know what? I caught the highlights, and like, and I, but, I, but for the most part, I had a, I had a lot going on. But, yes, mm. I am kicking myself for not sitting down to that game and watching that. Mm. My wife and kids uh, have this the same argument because, uh, you know, I don't have a favorite team in anything. Even when I love car racing, I don't have a favorite driver. I love it so much. And they all they all yell at me because I don't have a favorite thing. And it's like, well, look at you guys. You guys can't even watch like this really important game because it's not your team. To me, I think you guys are losing out by choosing your favorite. I don't get it. Yeah, you know, I saw a meme a little while ago that said something like, people choose their f- favorite teams by the time they're 11 and then let it ruin the rest of their lives. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Uh, all righty. Uh, all right, start with the poll question of the day. Have you noticed a shortage of product at, on your store shelves? And I just stuck my head out the window to yell at my wife uh, on this, and uh, but she was on the phone. 56% of you saying yes. I don't think she's talked about it too much. Have you seen it much on store shelves and such, or is it just certain products? Diana, we'll start with you. I have not. Um, I mean, I don't. I, I've heard that there are some shortages at bigger stores, like maybe Costco. I go to, you know, Fortino's, Metro, uh, Freshco, that kind of thing. I haven't seen mm-hmm. it yet. So, I mean, I agree. Yeah, I, I'm not seeing it. Dave. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I live in an area where there's a lot of different uh, stores, a lot of different grocery stores. So if there's a place that, do, that you know, doesn't have what I need, I go to another one. Um, yeah. But I haven't seen, you know, like I've heard of people saying that there's, you know, they're completely wiped out of, you know, ground beef or, or chicken or whatever the case may be. But I haven't seen it myself. Well, what about you? I've noticed some uh, sparseness on shelf with regards to, you know, as meat, chicken, uh, Etc. But um, mostly, it's it's just sparse. Thanks for uh, listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com. One thing we can agree on is price, and that's gone through the roof. All right, second anniversary of the first reported case of COVID, January twenty fifth, twenty twenty, in Toronto. Have we? I mean, I don't think it's an anniversary anybody wants to celebrate or even draw attention to at this point. Um, but what have we learned? Can we take any positives from this, whether it's the medical community working together on a vaccine, whether it's maybe society changing its priorities in life? Diana, what are your thoughts two years in? Yeah, I'll take a positive spin on this as an eternal optimist that I am. I think it taught people a lot to be more mindful of what we have and more grateful for things that we have and and just to cherish those moments that, you know, you do get to hug your grandmother and kind of see your family. I mean, we're never going to, again, you know... um, well, hopefully not, uh, yeah. go back, you know, into the early days where, you know, we were scared as to whether or not we'll ever get out of this. And I mean, you know, the first time I went to, you know, a sporting event or a concert after, you know, we had been inside for so long, it really felt like it hit me on an emotional level. Like we were taking this for granted for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Dave? Yeah, I think we can we can say that we now know what priorities are in our life. I think that's one of the biggest yeah. things. And and the other thing too is that we learned how to deal with adversity and we and we came out on the other side for most of us, right? So I mean it's it's one of those things that it's a, a you know a, a good and bad thing. You know, you never wanna have to, you know, see how you deal with adversity like this, but it's it's nice yeah. to know that we all kind of made it through. It was interesting. I interviewed a teacher yesterday, a high school teacher, and he was chatting. Uh, we were chatting about how he felt kids really appreciated the community of school going back, and he really saw the excitement. And I noticed this with my own grade niner uh, kid that, you know, just going back, I don't think I've ever seen them oh, jump yeah. up and I've down never, so I've, much about yeah. going back to school. They're into it. Yeah, I've never seen kids so excited to go to school. Exactly. Yeah. Will, your thoughts on this? Uh, much the same as the other two. I lost my, uh, I lost my grandfather. I lost my step grandfather. Mm. I lost a good friend of mine, and it just makes you take a step back and live for the moment to moment, and you know, just hope that we get through this without you know any more scathing on our on our butts. You know. 
And our condolences to anybody who's lost anybody during this, this whatever it's been. All right, uh, this is an interesting story today, and you, were, you guys were reporting on it. Neil Young wants uh, off Spotify if Joe Rogan's podcast is on Spotify. Uh, Joe Rogan, uh, you know, anti-vaxxer kind of spreading misinformation. Neil Young, obviously, um, uh, a little bit more uh, honest and scientific than that. Uh, what your thoughts on Neil laying down this gauntlet? Does it matter? Do more have to jump on board? Diana? Well, I think what Alan Cross was saying earlier, I think that more people do have to jump on board for people to actually take a look and say, maybe we're going to do this boycott or or listen to Neil uh, and whoever else does it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Neil Young, not so much Joe Rogan. I'll be honest, I haven't listened to a lot of his stuff. I've heard him here or there, so I really can't speak to uh, what exactly he's been saying. Um, But, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think... I don't think it's going to cause the the ripple effect that that Mr. Young thinks it will. <laughs> hmm. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, Adele earlier this year, you know, she got Spotify to change the way that they put, you know, a playlist together. But uh, Neil Thank Young, the Lord. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, Neil Young is no Adele right now. So I, I don't know if his word is going to have a whole lot of uh, sway. Will, your thoughts? Neil Young getting political? Never. But no, this could be very interesting because you have two very charismatic men with uh, very different bases going head to head. This could be very fun in the public discourse. But, you know, it's just it's an old man making his political moves, obviously. And I mean, free speech, right? Go for it. Yes, you just said Neil Young's an old man. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Tableheads, Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard, and William Weber, all around the virtual round table. A couple of issues going on here in regard to supply chain and the trucking industry. Uh, one is a mandate that has recently come in with both Canada and the United States that truckers have to be fully vaccinated to go across the borders. And the other is a convoy, which is moving from west to east uh, on its way to Ottawa. Is this about the truckers' issues or is this um, about anti-vaxxers jumping on the truckers issues let's bring in Ofer Barron distinguished professor of operations management academic director MMA program at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and is with us now Ofer thank you for the time I hope you're doing well uh, so far so good thank you Scott for uh, having me here so will or do these COVID-19 vaccine mandates for truckers, which are now, uh, from what I understand, in effect for both Canada and the United States, so, you know, you can't go in either direction. Is this going to greatly affect the chaos or, or the crisis that we're seeing in supply chain? Or is it that so many of the truckers, like so many Canadians, are already vaccinated, that this is, um, you know, a minor point that can be addressed? Well, it will have more impact if a convoy like this would uh, continue uh, employing so many uh, vehicles, I guess. But I think uh, all in all, uh, there shouldn't be too large of an impact of this. As you hinted, most of the drivers are uh, vaccinated. And uh, we hope that uh, logistic companies can manage their other drivers in an effective fashion so as to reduce the impact of these restrictions. Uh, from what I understand, because so many of them are vaccinated, like the rest of the population, that they can maneuver this with domestic routes and international routes. Obviously, drivers that aren't vaccinated staying in the country, those that are, uh, go across the border. Do you see that as being a reasonable solution here? Uh, again, is, is that possible? Can it be done without disruption? 
So that's uh, the, my understanding is this is the preferred solution by uh, many companies. Uh, other solutions that I've uh, heard are being employed are basically encouraging uh, non-vaccinated drivers to vaccinate uh, more, possibly by uh, suggesting some uh, better pay uh, for this. And uh, obviously there is still gonna be some uh, operational flexibility in terms of choosing what type of uh, items we delay more when uh, transforming them across the border. Um, probably perishable items like food are not going to suffer, but possibly some other items which are less uh, um, urgent. I know maybe furnitures or toys uh, can be delayed a little bit longer. Is uh, is this an exercise in futility, meaning the, the, the protest, if in fact both countries, U.S. and Canada, are abiding by this? It just seems that in order to change it, you'd have to get both countries on board. And again, with the vast majority vaccinated, is that possible? Uh, I think it's, uh, it's certainly possible. Uh, we know of uh, many other places where uh, vaccine mandated uh, have been uh, required from all employees in specific companies and public companies and so on. So, you know, there's a, possibly, as you hinted before, some anti-vaxxers are pushing this and making more of it than it uh, should be. But I'm, I'm not sure of the details, obviously. So, uh, again, that's my, my, my next question. But is this, do you think, is this about the damage it could do to the supply chain, uh, the bottlenecks it could create in an, auto, you know, in an already, uh, um, you know, fragile situation? Or do you think this is more about an anti-vax movement and this is a good vehicle for it? Um, good question. I suspect it's uh, the has much to do with uh, anti-vaxxers and only hopefully little to do with uh, the supply chain issues that uh, these uh, restrictions are um, imposing. Uh, because there are a lot, it appears, in some of the shots we've seen, there are a lot of trucks involved, but it would seem there's many, 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 many more who are just going about the business. Uh, yeah, yeah. And especially... The, the main thing to remember is uh, this is kind of something that is be, being done in Canada, but for that matter, you cannot cross uh, from Canada to the U.S. in any easier fashion, right? So having this convoy uh, putting some pressure, presumably on uh, Canadian policymakers, without uh, putting pressure on the American policymakers, um, make it appear as if uh, there's not much benefit to supply chain that can come out of it. Is this sort of protest happening in the United States? Uh, not as far as I know, but I didn't look in depth into this. So, right. maybe so where do you see the issues regarding supply chain in the immediate future uh, and say six months from now? Where do you think we'll see things go? Is this going to be an issue that is ongoing or do you see this rectifying itself in the next six months to a year? I suspect this very specific issue would be rectified uh, in, the, in this uh, horizon. However, as we observed over the last um, couple of years, some other supply chain issues uh, may be raised again. One critical uh, supply chain issue can be basically people getting sick. So, uh, mm. you know, so many people are being sick by uh, Omicron and so on all around the world. 
trackers are, are not immune to this either, even if they are vaccinated like many other populations. So that may have a bigger impact. And um, hopefully, you know, the COVID situation will go uh, down and uh, uh, entire, the entire global supply chain uh, would, would be in better shape than what it is uh, over the last couple of years. But we have seen uh, many, many situations that take our already stretched supply chain infrastructure and stretch it even more. And these latest restrictions are just one more, I know, one more straw on the back of the common mm. and, and pointing to the frustration as well. Uh, Ofer Barron with us, distinguished professor of operations management, academic director, MMA program at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, talking about issues with truckers and vaccination and how that will affect supply chains. Uh, Ofer, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, have a good day. Bye-bye. What matters to you, what matters to Hamilton, matters to Scott. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It was uh, this day back in 2020, uh, January 25th, 2020, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in Canada uh, when a man arrived from Wuhan, China, and then the second case was his wife a day later. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. To talk about where we are now, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert and someone who I think we've been talking about for the entire, or talking to for the entire uh, two years. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. So is this a date worth noting, or is this uh, something we would just rather forget? Is there is it worth noting this date? I think it's worth noting. I think it should change the trajectories of our future and our societies and our, the systems we have in place. We look back at the, back, uh, the past two years, and we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about, our, mm-hmm. first and foremost, our mental health capacity to sustain continuous pressures on it. We've also learned about the, the gaps in our systems that need fixing and need urged fixing. You know, we, you and I have said this in day one, that crises like COVID-19 will continue to happen, whether it's climate change or another infectious disease. Those are things that we know from the science will continue to increase in, in frequency. And so the question for us now is to really spend some time as we hopefully put this pandemic behind us to think about what do we need to tackle and what's the most urgent thing first. I think, you know, a, a few weeks, a few months is one thing, but two years, boy, uh, when you put your finger on, on life for two years and literally stop it, I think it has made a lot of people uh, look inward at a lot of different things. You know, it's interesting how much we talked about at the beginning, Doctor, that actually came true. Uh, chatter of vaccines, or, or even I remember back at the beginning of this, some saying, yeah, it'll be a two-year process, and sure enough, here we are. Absolutely. I mean, I knew early on and I projected that it was going to be a quite a, a journey for us to go through it, that the science will take time to catch up to what needs to happen in terms of innovation and vaccine delivery or just treatment. I mean, this is a crisis like never, ever before in history. Uh, and so with that comes a learning curve. And the expectation is that learning curve will take some time to happen. And so I think, you know, the one big thing, Scott, is actually on an individual level. I think we each, each and every one of us, now understand how, what we need to do to take care of ourselves uh, mentally and physically and, and what we value the most in life. What are our priorities? You know, family, uh, whether it is travel, things that we used to take for granted that was taken away from us. Now we actually recognize how important it is for us. 
As you look back at this, what stood out? What surprised you the most? That wow, I didn't didn't see that one coming, or the speed of this, or or what have you. This has surprised me because again, a lot of this, uh, you know, scientists and people in the know could sort of predict what was going to happen. But what surprised you in this? I think what actually surprised me, and it might be a bit surprising to people who hear this coming from a health system and health policy expert, is how fragile our health system is. Uh, I'm somebody who studies our health system extensively, and I recognize the gaps in our system. But I was actually quite surprised that there was the level, how much politics played a role in this pandemic response, uh, and how much the inadequacy of our system sustained damage over a long time uh, is actually uh, the core issue that we need to fix. So whether it is our educational system, but also our health systems, first and foremost, like how do we build stronger ones to sustain the next pandemic or the next crisis that might affect us. That was surprising to me, and especially, especially the politics part and how, how, how strong of a place it, it played out over the past two years. Do you think that has surprised Canadians, Ahmad? Because, you know, Canadians are quite proud of their health system. They brag about it all the time, um, obviously because it's universal, but yet that seems to cloud over uh, the weak links in the chain. Uh, have we finally realized that, that this, you know, maybe time to stop bragging and realize, just as you said, how fragile it is and what needs to be done here? Absolutely. I'd be very surprised if you speak to any Canadian out there who basically did not have access to his to our own system the past few years. Many of us who did not get COVID-19 or didn't need to, to seek a hospital were did, had denied access to the system that we're so proud of. What I mean by that is that, you know, elective surgeries were canceled. Access to the ER was disencouraged because if you had something, you should probably deal with it at home. So many of us who were very proud of our system and our accessibility to a certain extent were denied that the past few years during the Mm. pandemic. And actually made us stop and reflect and say, well, maybe uh, the system does need reform. Maybe we really need to be looking at telehealth and telemedicine as the forefront of primary care delivery in Canada. Maybe we need to look at our ICU capacity across the country. Those are core issues that in the past was reserved to people in academia and researchers and now has become at the forefront of everybody's minds, whether they are in healthcare or not. So as we are at this stage, and, and maybe we're premature to say that it's over with Omicron, because uh, we certainly said all of that before Christmas, uh, but as we approach endemic stage of this, what should our priority be now at this point? Well, I, I, you, I'm glad you bring this up. I think first and foremost, we need to look at uh, talk to people who were experiencing difficulties throughout the pandemic and really try to get at addressing those difficulties. So let's speak to the parents and figure out what failed in our educational system. Better ventilation, better support to teachers, and better support to the parents. Not that complicated. It just requires political will and resources available for them. Let's look at our health, health system. Let's speak to our healthcare providers, our nurses, our doctors, our paramedics everybody that works in a healthcare system and ask them explicitly what exactly failed for them during this. Is it about increasing ICU capacity? Is it about better work shift schedule for the healthcare providers? Uh, Is it better compensation for their services? Those are the things that are tangible that now we can look at actually fixing so we're better prepared for the next crisis. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert. Doctor, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure we'll continue to chat about this as we mark this uh, date of two years since the very first case was detected uh, in Canada. Thanks for the time. Thanks for everything you've given us uh, over the past two years in trying to teach us uh, what this is all about. You be well. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. A couple of things we want to talk to Ian Lee about, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I just want to get your opinion before we start on uh, what the Premier is up to uh, in regard to the supply chain and the mandates with uh, COVID-19 vaccination. In other words, truckers, both directions, Canada and the U.S., need to be vaccinated in order to get across the border. Many are saying, even though uh, the majority of the truckers here, vast majority, like Canadians, are fully vaccinated, that this may cause some stress on the supply chain, uh, the chaos that we're already experiencing. Uh, your thoughts? I mean, will uh, you know over and above the convoy? But does this does this uh, mandate actually slow the supply chain down? We've already been involved right. with this for about a week, I guess. Right. Um, I'm setting aside the question of the convoy and possible protests that would shut down uh, the roads. You and I discussed this a year and a half ago when interest groups, environmental groups, were shutting down the railroads, and I've said that. We should never, no matter how well-intentioned, we should not allow as a precedent that a disgruntled group, any disgruntled group, whether indigenous or environmental or whatever, should not be allowed to shut down the supply chains because there's people, millions of people that depend on them to go to the grocery store and get their groceries. So let's set that aside. But your question is the the issue of the government mandating it. And, And I'll be very, very blunt. Uh, on this, uh, and I have no relationship with this industry whatsoever, Scott, but I'll be very blunt. Um, I think that this is posturing by the two governments, um, trying to show and demonstrate to the public, look, we're in charge, we're doing something. Because the argument is, we're doing this to stop COVID from coming into Canada. Newsflash, Prime Minister, newsflash, COVID has been in Canada for almost two years. The current (laughs) variant has spread across the country. It's in every city in the country. The idea that by stopping trucks, the drivers who are sitting in their little truck bubble or big truck bubble, 18 wheel trucks going down interstate highways and 401 highways all by themselves as they do to drive from depot to depot. And I have talked to people, for example, in the grocery store industry, as recently as yesterday, I said, did the truckers get out and unload these trucks? He said, absolutely not. He says, they've never done that. He says, Mm -hmm. our local people unload them. So you could very easily say to the truck drivers, you must remain in your truck at all times if you're not uh, vaccinated. They could have taken. Okay, I understand. I understand that, Ian. That you know it's not needed, and I agree with you. I I, I think we're we're right. overreaching here. I think we're looking for problems just to find a distraction and to take the attention yes. away from politicians. But my question yes. to you is: Will this slow the supply chain? I know it's not needed, but will it slow the supply chain or is there enough people that can do things that don't want to cross domestically and don't get vaccinated and the other right. ones that are vaccinated can go across the, the border? I believe it will, Scott. And, and as you know, I'm evidence-based. I use hard data all the time uh, from Statistics Canada, U.S. Census Bureau, and so forth. One of my student groups, because I teach the strategy class where they have to choose companies and analyze them, uh, last term did a, a major U.S. trucking company. And they have to analyze all kinds of things. And one of the things that came up in their very good research was that there is a shortage as we speak. Well, last term, but it hasn't changed. There's a shortage of 100,000 truckers in the United States. It's a, Mm -hmm. for anybody who studies the trucking industry, it's a huge problem. And this predates COVID, by the way. COVID made it worse, has exacerbated the problem. And so, Anytime where you've got a shortage, a very large shortage of truckers, and then you come along and say, okay, we're going to make the shortage get worse. 
This is not a good thing. To your question, one third of the totality of our country is imported. One third of GDP is imported. Over 2 trillion is GDP, so about 700 billion. And the vast majority, again, this is StatsCan data, about 90% of the goods in our country move by truck. They don't move by airplane, it's too expensive. And they don't move by rail except heavy commodity products like steel and, and wheat and that sort of thing. Most products are by truck. So what we're doing is we're going to create at the margins, we're gonna create, make the supply chain problem worse. Not better, worse. Now, I'm not saying all the stores are suddenly going to become empty. I'm just saying this will make the situation not better. It'll make it somewhat worse. All right. I want to talk to you about uh, the Premier tapping into 10 manufacturing trade union leaders. Uh, This is part of his Premier's Council on U.S. Trade and Industry Competitiveness, Uh, obviously in regard to the protectionist measures being introduced by the Biden government. Is this an unusual approach? What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's not unusual. They have to be, and I don't mean this flippantly or sarcastically. I really mean this. But the premier, and for that matter, remember, Jerry Diaz is elected too. He's a politician too. Yep. He's a union politician. Nothing wrong with that. Perfectly legit. But they have to be seen to be doing something. Why I think that this is, and I'll be very blunt again, this these actions by these leaders, including the premier, including Mr. Diaz, is kabuki theater. Why do I say that? Because for the past 20 years, the U.S. trade rep, USTR, for those who want to Google it, has tabled a report public to the world in the U.S. Congress and to the U.S. president showing trade irritants by country. Canada has been doing by Canadian for years and years. We don't allow American phone companies to come into Canada. We don't allow Verizon. Boy, it's called by that's Canadian. a valid. There's valid points right there. My goodness. Go ahead. We don't allow uh, hardly any American dairy to come in because of our dairy uh, uh, supply chain, uh, uh, protection, uh, uh, supply management. We don't allow American banks to come in under the Bank Act. We don't allow American airlines to buy Canadian airlines. We are doing big time buy Canadian and have been doing it for years. Okay, fine. That's our choice. Okay, but now we're turning around to the Americans and we're so naive, I guess, in our country that we think that they don't know we're doing this except that this has been listed. These irritants have been listed in the U.S. Trade Rep's report to Congress. It's not a secret. The Americans know we've been doing buy Canadian for years. So we're saying to them, stop your buy American. And by the way, we're going to keep on doing buy Canadian. And 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 they, they're just going to laugh at us. People, they're going to laugh at us. If we are serious, and I don't believe Mr. Diaz is serious, I don't believe Premier Ford is serious, they would say, okay, Americans, We hate Buy American, so let's get together and have an agreement. We're going to get rid of all our Buy Canadian, and you get rid of all your Buy American, and let's have real free trade. But they're not going to do that, so that tells me they're not serious. Where is this going, especially around the conversation of electric vehicles and where those batteries are going to be manufactured? I mean, this is the next generation. It is, and uh, I think what, what Trump did, and I know Biden's the president, we all know that, But uh, what Trump did was legitimized, when he was the president, uh, what many Americans were saying privately and at the local level in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and so forth, there was this very strong sense, that's why Trump got elected in 2016, that allies of the United States were cheating. 
and we're taking the Americans to the cleaners. The Trump said it over and over. He says the Canadians are yeah. cheating, the Mexicans are cheating, the Germans are cheating, China's cheating. And he made it acceptable for politicians of both political parties to stand up. And, and so we're, I'm answering your question. I do not believe they're going to water down or uh, back down on Buy American. Trump, excuse me, President Biden has said so in so many words. So have other leaders in the U.S. Congress. And, and I don't think, the, I think there's only one solution is, is that we, uh, the prime minister and the premiers agreed that we need a NAFTA 3.0 where everything is on the table. And if there's Canadians who say, wait a minute, I don't want airlines on the table. I don't want dairy on the table. I don't want telecom on the table. Well then get used to buy American and us being excluded from important parts of the U.S. economy. Interesting take. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley will be joining us, and or joining you. And, uh, of course, uh, you can read Scott in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Always well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, as always happens or seems to happen a lot whenever you and I chat is uh, whatever we were supposed to talk about kind of goes out the window, and we go Uh-oh. down some... Uh, <laughs> We go down some laneway somewhere. And that happened yesterday, and I felt bad after it was over because I was waiting to chat with you about the football weekend and the Buffalo Bills because obviously they're such a big part of, uh, of this community, lots of Hamilton fans uh, uh, Buffalo, up the Buffalo Bills and such. What were your thoughts on the game? We were sitting around with the boy watching it on the weekend. It was some great football. Uh, what was your boy's thought on it? Is he a fan? Yes, big time. He's a big Buffalo fan. As he is a Ticats fan, I may add. And it's good that you bring both of those up because we saw, let's not talk about the Bills per se, because it, I mean, it was an amazing game and all the rest, but we saw in the last couple months, um, Grey Cup and then this one, the two overtime formats. That the yes, yes, offer. and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. I'm sorry, Scott. I mean, I'm not, I don't profess no, to no, be a that's, football, that's I don't profess no. to be a football head, but like the, the, the overtime system is stupid. It really is, and that is that is the story, and that's what everybody, and not just here, not just in the greater Buffalo area, if that's what you want to call us, but around North America, that's what everybody is talking about, is, wait a second, this has been a problem before, this has happened in games before, and the NFL seems to not want to change the rule, and it is the stupidest rule, I think, in all of sports, and it's come back to bite them again. And the reason it's so stupid, Scott, and look, anyone who watched the game or knows what I'm talking about, forgive me for repeating this again, but essentially the NFL has a rule that if it's tied going into overtime, you flip a coin, whoever gets the coin toss gets to decide whether to kick the ball or receive the ball. Well, everybody receives because if you score a touchdown on your first possession, it's over. It's over, and the other team never gets a chance to do anything. How can that possibly be when you have a sport where only your defense or offense is on the team at one time? Well, so, first of all, yes, of course. Second of all, if this rule was not a problem, surely you would see a bunch of teams with a really good defense say, well, we're going to give you the ball first because we trust our defense and then we'll hold you. But nobody does that because everybody knows that the chances – there's been 11 playoff games that went to overtime in the NFL since they went to this format. Seven of those 11 
a team that won the coin toss, took the ball, and scored on the first possession, and the other team never got to touch the ball. Yeah. And it just is ludicrous. And here's the biggest reason why it's so ludicrous. And I wrote this today in the paper. I don't really understand what the owners and other people involved are in such a rush to get to that they can't say, well, we can't wait for another five minutes for the other team to have a go at this just to yeah. make it fair. Where, where are they going? Where's their dinner reservation? What's the show that they can't PVR that they have to race home to get to? Like, what's the rush? Is there a single person who is watching that game, whether you're in Kansas City or Buffalo or anywhere else, is there a single person? There were 43 million people apparently watching that game on the weekend. Hmm. Was there one person out of those 43 million who said to themselves after Kansas City scored, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I really don't want more of this. Yeah, wrap it up. <laughs> like, no, everybody it, wanted more of that. I just, I just don't – like, the NFL, the people who run it, let's be honest, they're brilliant at doing what they do. It makes – they've got a $100 billion TV contract over the next 10 years. This is the one thing that I look at and I say, you've got an opportunity to give people – more of what they want, extend hmm. the audience, and then, you know what, if you're worried about a show, if you're worried about like CSI Des Moines is coming on or something afterwards, and you're worried people, you've now built your audience to hand it to that show, even if it is a few minutes late. I, it's, got, it's, it's, it's so entirely nonsensical that it just, it baffles me why they insist on sticking with it. Will this be addressed or is this a moot point? Oh, I'm sure it'll be addressed. Uh, I, but that doesn't mean it'll be fixed because uh, yeah. a number of years ago, this very same thing happened to Kansas City and it was brought up and all the owners other than Kansas City said, no, we like it. And, you know, eventually what will happen is in time, you'll have enough of the teams that have lost this way that will all now understand and go, wait, this was the stupidest possible rule. I mean, think about this for one second, and everybody has thrown out a, a metaphor for this. And so, you know, this is not going to be all that creative, but Imagine a 12-round boxing match, and at the end of 12 rounds, you go to the judges' cards, and it turns out it's a draw. And so they say, all right, we're going to one extra round. Uh, we're going to flip a coin, though. And the guy who loses the coin toss is not permitted to throw a punch for the entire round. And if, at the end of three minutes of being pounded on, you're still standing, well, then you'll get a chance to throw a punch back. But if you get knocked out, sorry, you don't get your turn. It's like playing a half an inning in baseball and not giving the other team a chance. I mean, there's so many examples. It's, it's just so bizarre. It, it's there's so many, and it's such a it's it's just it's so monumentally inane that you look at and you go. It's you almost get the sense that the folks who run parts of the NFL are doing it just to troll the rest of the fan base because they know <laughs> there's no possible way to defend this. But you fans, there is nothing you can do about it. So yeah, that's right. we're in charge. It's the debate. All right. Uh, who's uh, on the uh, – no, we don't have time for that. Who's on the show real quick, real quick? Uh, we're talking about television stuff, about uh, everything is throwback in TV these days. We'll explain what that's all about. And we are talking about, did you see the stock market today and the last few yeah. days? People are yeah. having aneurysms watching their investments. We're going to talk about what's going on. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist in your Hamilton Spectator. It's all coming up after 6 o'clock. Thanks, as always, Scott. Be well. See ya. That's a wrap for us. Thanks to the two Wills for producing both content and technically. Uh, also to Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, thank you for listening. And as always, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to have the last word. 
Hello, my name is Bonnie, and I'm calling in regard to the HSR. Since COVID-19 has started, bus drivers will not get out of their seat to open the windows, and they told me that it would inconvenience others and be very uncomfortable for them. Even though Toronto buses have their windows open to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The HSR has never dealt with problems that uh, customers have faced, and they usually blame the customer. 99. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.